Though we're just saying it, I would like to invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 35. I do not intend to give a full exposition or even a brief exposition, but simply to look at what we have just sung and use that as a springboard to take us into that theme of what I'm calling jealous prayer. And I was not tasked to take up the subject, so I can't blame anyone but myself for this, but I certainly want to ask for God's help this evening as I begin, and so I want to start with prayer that we might have God's blessing. So let us, let us pray right now. Our Father, this is a difficult subject, probably because of where we where we live in parts of the world that wouldn't think in such a way, where we've been told by society and even some in the church that these passages of Scripture are not by the church. We have wondered and wrestled with how do we uh, read portions of Scripture, much less sing them or pray them. Or there's a lot of question marks here and I indeed confess I need your help to speak clearly, to enunciate, but also to uh, have my thoughts conveyed in a clear manner. Lord, give us, give us a clear mindset tonight that we might look at your word and be faithful to your word. Lord, may we not be quick to pray such words, but Lord, may we also recognize that there is a time, there is a place, and so Lord, help us to understand that. We do seek your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you recall, and maybe you don't know because you haven't been with us, but we have been looking at the theme of the jealousy of God. We've spent so far four sermons talking about the jealousy of God, his jealousy for himself, his infinite zeal for that which is most precious to him, what is his by ownership, and how God, even his name, is jealous. Ezekiel, uh, sorry, Exodus 34 tells us. And then we looked at the counterpoint of that, looking at David and some other characters, of what it is for us to be jealous for God. If God is jealous for himself, ought not we to be jealous for God as well. But now I want to move that theme of our jealousy for God and his jealousy for himself. I want that to move into uh, a practical part that uh, would tell us how should that jealousy work itself out. One of, the, one of the many ways that our jealousy for God should manifest itself in the realm of piety, I believe, is the realm of prayer. How we pray to God should be a reflection of our zeal, our jealousy that God be glorified. Our righteous zeal for His glory, our zeal for what is precious to Him is precious to us. What God hates, we hate. What He loves, we love. That should come out in our prayer. Our, our prayer should demonstrate a jealousy for God that we should pray jealously or, or jealously pray with what I'm calling a jealous prayer. And at first I thought jealous prayer would only mean an, an imprecatory prayer. But then I thought if the motivation for such jealousy is to pray that God glorified, then I have to confess that I can't rightly call an, uh, a prayer of imprecation a jealous prayer. I think there's actually two kinds of 
jealous prayers, I'm not going to spend time on the first. To pray jealously or with jealous motives, if you will, it's, it's really the same motivation behind both the prayers. First of all, there's a prayer for God's glory and the justification and salvation of sinners. We might call that an evangelistic prayer, that we would pray for the lost, pray for those who we love dearly, but pray for their conversion for God's glory. We are so overwhelmed with God's glory. We want to see trophies of grace for the name and sake of God. And so we pray for this person or that person that God's name be magnified, that we can look at and see, look at this person, how God has changed this person. Be praise to God. That could be a jealous prayer. And then, with the same kind of motivation, that God be magnified, that God be glorified, we can also pray for God's glory in the condemnation and destruction of sinners. And that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Imprecatory prayers. The motivation is the same. We pray that God be magnified and God be glorified, whether in saving sinners or condemning them. We've just sung from our Psalter, Psalm 35. Psalm 35, it is an imprecatory psalm. In fact, there are three psalms in our Bible that are totally giving, giving themselves over to Praying down judgment. That's what an imprecation means. Imprecatory prayer is to pray down on something. There are three psalms that are totally imprecatory. Now there's imprecations all throughout the, the psalms. Passing prayers and statements all throughout the Bible. But there are three psalms that are totally given over to praying down judgment. Praying down destruction upon the enemy of God. And we just sang it in corporate worship. So you know where I'm, where I'm coming from. I don't have a problem with them. And if I did, that was a really mean joke to pull on you guys to make you sing something. Now, I think it's right for us to sing those. And yet, even as I was singing them with you, in my mind, because I know where I'm going with this, I was singing them with certain peoples in mind. I was wondering if that was happening to you. Maybe I thought, you know, probably should have explained this before I had them sing judgment upon the enemies of God. But at least, if nothing else, it caused you to think, can I pray this? Can we sing this in church? How is God glorified in these things? And these are some of the questions I want you to be asking, and I, I hope and pray in, that, in this sermon, and then and I, I couldn't do this in one sermon so in the next sermon, at least, we can answer some of those questions. Let's read Psalm 35, verses 1 through 8. We're not going to do the whole psalm, but again, the whole psalm is one long imprecatory prayer. But look at verses 1 through 8. Plead my cause... Let me back up. A psalm of David. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spirit and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who, who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. 
Let them be like chaff before the wind. Let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit with which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly, and let his net that he has hidden catch himself, and to that very destruction let him fall. Honestly, brother, this is one of the more tame imprecatory prayers that we have in the Old Testament. And with that in mind, I think it's fitting that before we take up the matter of how do we pray like this? Like, I want to know, how do I pray like this? When, when is it right and when can I do it and how do I pray like this? Before we do that, I think it's fitting that before we take up that matter, how we can pray with a jealous prayer, before we do that, we need to ask some important questions, some theological questions. Can we pray in this way? I've already told you, we've already done it, so I use my answer, but should we pray in this way? What biblical justification can I offer you that says and that maintains Christians ought to pray and sing the way we read in Psalm 35? The reason that this is daunting is because you may or may not be surprised by how many evangelicals would say, no, we ought not to pray Psalm 35. That if they would have come in the the doors and heard us singing these words, they would have been mortified. In his excellent commentary on the Psalms, Derek Kidner says this, Can a Christian use these cries for vengeance as his own? The short answer must surely be no. No more than he should echo the curse of Jeremiah or the protest of Job. That might be hard for us to wrap our minds around, but then again, maybe not. Maybe you've struggled over these. For those who have a very low view of the Bible, we call them higher critics because I'm not sure why we call them higher critics, but anyways, that's what they're called. Those who would say that the Bible is just a uh, book of old religion from a long time ago. It's not the Word of God. They would say, uh, they who do not believe in the uh, Old Testament being the Word of God, they see this simply as a contradiction. How can we pray destruction on our enemies and yet at the same time, are told to love our enemies. How can we, uh, how, how can we pray Psalm 137 verses 8, Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. How do we how do we pray that? And of course, those who think that the Bible is not God's inspired word, clear up contradiction, case closed. But then there are evangelicals, those who confess that the Bible is inspired by God and inerrant and infallible. They would say that the, these are simply the prayers of a vengeful man. They're not actually the pronouncements from God. Some try to skirt the issue and say that these aren't pronouncements of God so much as just prophecies. Well, they don't read like a prophecy. The language of let this happen and Lord do this, the the language of command or of, of request is not a prophecy. They are called, quote, defective prayers in the pulpit commentary series. Those of you who might have heard of the Schofield Reference Bible says that they are a cry unsuited for the church. And then C.S. Lewis, everyone loves to quote C.S. Lewis. He says this. This is not worth quoting. He says, 
these, of these psalms, they are devilish. I would submit to you, brethren, that these men, these views are both wrong and they're dangerous. If we can't sing Psalm 35, if you can't pray Psalm 35, I think it implies that portions of scriptures are off limits for Christians. That's a dangerous view. That we are just, they're just portions of scripture that are out of bounds. That implies notions that maybe it's tainted with error. Maybe it's lacking divine authorships. It's just the, the complaints of a human being recorded in the Bible that somehow snuck into the Holy Writ. Or maybe it's led some to think that there are flat out contradictions in the Bible. But I want to say this, brother. Not only should Christians not be ashamed of these portions, I think we, in our jealousy towards God, our desire that God be glorified, that His righteousness be done, I believe that we ought to take them up in our jealous praying. And so one of the, the applications I want to make, I'll go ahead and state it ahead of time, but I'll reinforce it later, is that I want you to be able to pray Psalm 35 correctly, at the right time, at the right moment, for the right reasons, but I don't want you to be afraid of it. There is a right time, there's a right place, there's a right motivation to pray these things. I don't want us to be afraid of portions of Scripture. I want us to embrace them, know how to use them correctly, biblically. That means there's a lot of questions that we have to answer. There's a lot of matters that we have to take up. So I want to do that now this evening. Again, I'm going to be, like I've been doing, dealing in the abstract at the beginning, then we'll get a little bit more concrete next time. So can we pray this way? What are imprecatory prayers? Are they legitimate? Are there any examples that we can go off of? Can we use them? Should we use them? These are some of the questions I want to be answering this evening. And I want to say to you, just up front, can we pray in this way? Well, the Old Testament saints obviously did. The Old Testament saints of God, they had no problem praying this. And they did so, and they did it often. And this is where we have to be consistent with our theology that the Old Testament is inspired. It is spoken out by the Spirit of God. And from that, we learn in 2 Timothy 3, if it's inspired, therefore it's profitable. Is that not what Paul says? All Scripture is inspired and profitable? And so if this is inspired Scripture, it's profitable, we need to understand how do we use this to our profit. But then we get to this notion, well, that's the Old Testament. That doesn't apply to us now that we're in the New Covenant. Well, that's a bad argument, but even if I granted that at first, would it shock you that the New Testament prays imprecatory prayer? That the New Testament quotes these Old Testament imprecatory psalms often. In fact, with the exception of four messianic psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 22... Psalm 110, which is about the right hand of God, the one that's quoted most and alluded to the most in the New Testament. And then Psalm 118. Those are the four most famous Messianic Psalms that the New Testament will quote. With the, with the exception of those, the three imprecatory Psalms that we're going to talk about are the most frequently cited Psalms in the New Testament. So after a Messianic Psalm, 
After those four famous Messianic Psalms, Psalm 35 that we looked at, Psalm 69, and then Psalm 109 are those three Psalms that are exclusively about imprecations against the enemy of God. They are quoted and cited more than any other Psalm outside of those four Messianic Psalms. The New Testament uses imprecatory prayers. We might even say that Jesus fulfills the imprecatory Psalms. We could say that if that's the case, these are his prayers. That when we pray Psalm 35 or when we sing them out, we're singing the words of Christ, these Psalms that are fulfilled in Christ. Let me give you some examples of this. This could feel like a Bible study, though I'm trying to make it as sermonic as I can. So if you want to follow along and move fast throughout Scripture, you can do that, or you can just listen very carefully as I read them off to you. Psalm 35, 19. You should be able to read this one here. It says, Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. It's that last line, hate me without cause, that will be taken up in John 15, 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause, Jesus says. He says, that which was written about in Psalm 35, it's happening to me now. Psalm 69, 9. Psalm 69 being the second of these imprecatory psalms. For zeal for your house has consumed me, Psalm 69, verse 9. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Well, John 2.17, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Speaking of Jesus, when he said that I'm going to destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. After he had beaten out the, with, with whips and cords those who were in the temple and the money changers. Romans 15.3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Even the Apostle Paul says, Psalm 69, that imprecatory psalm, is Christ's psalm. It's about Christ. He is fulfilling it. It's his words speaking these, these prayers. Psalm 69.25 says, Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let, not, uh, let no one live in their tents. And then in Psalm 109, the, the uh, author of this psalm, uh, David, says, May his days be few. May another take his office. Speaking of someone committing treason against him. And so both Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, verse 8 get used of Judas Iscariot in Acts 1.20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Let the one who betrayed Jesus be treated the way that someone betrayed David. And another takes his office in Acts chapter 1. These are just a few, brethren. There are many more that we could cite here. But these are psalms exclusively about imprecatory calling down judgment against the enemy of God that are about Christ. That these are psalms of Christ. Not just about him, fulfilled by him, but they are his words, his psalms. But then the, the New Testament has, has quite a few New Testament imprecatory prayers. Galatians 1.9, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than that which you've received, let him be accursed. By the way, that's probably one of the worst imprecatory prayers that you can say. You're not just saying, let their children's heads be dashed against the wall. Yeah, that's bad. 
But this is saying, let him be burned in the, in the, the, the lake of fire. 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, speaking in behalf of Christ, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. That's in the New Testament. Revelation 6.10, speaking of the martyred saints, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Or Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Those saints in Revelation 19 did not have any problem exalting God for the judgment and the justice and the punishment brought down on the enemies of God. And perhaps the ultimate imprecatory prayer comes in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Paul, the apostle, writes, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Anyone who is not willing to bow the knee to Christ, who is not going to own Christ, the right and good judgment is that that person be consigned to the pits of hell. Oh Lord, come, he says. Well, okay, that's the Old Testament, or that's the New Testament quote in the Old Testament, or that's just the Apostle Paul or some of the saints. Does Jesus, though, and, and I am not trying to mimic a good hermeneutic here. If it's in the Old Testament, it's legit. If the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's legit. If the apostles quote it, it's from Christ. But I'm, I'm even willing to go a little bit further with a bad hermeneutic. Does Jesus, does Jesus pray imprecatory prayers? Well, have you uh, listened to the Lord's Prayer recently? I tried to use that as my model in my pastoral prayer this morning. But what is it? What are you praying for when you pray that the kingdom of, uh, of God come and God's will be done as it is in heaven on earth even more so? You're praying exactly what the saints were praying in Revelation 19. That his judgments, his, his, his power is righteous. Let the punishment fall down upon the enemies of God. For God's kingdom to come on the earth, this is Christ praying in the model prayer Let the saints be vindicated and the enemies of God be put down. But probably the most obvious places in the New Testament where Jesus himself will speak a prayer of imprecation against the enemies of God, and there are numerous places, is when he uses the word woe. In fact, I I almost nudge uh, Pastor Atkins to, to read one more passage in Isaiah, because the next verse in Isaiah 28 verse 1 says, woe, woe to this person or woe to this nation. Chapter 29, woe to Jerusalem. Many times Jesus would say, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Jesus being very winsome, mind you. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And we hear woe and we think like a horse. Whoa, slow down, watch out. Here comes bad news. That's not what it means. 
It is a Hebrew word. It's a, it's a Semitic expression that communicates displeasure. We might just as well say, Ah, oh, Bethsaida. Oh, scribes and Pharisees. It, it, it presents an object of disaster. It's often used in the Old Testament as, as an announcement for disaster. It becomes a threat of doom and of judgment for Jesus to say to them, Woe to you! Woe to you! He is calling down judgment upon them. So does Jesus pray these prayers? Does he speak this way? Yes, he does. Absolutely, he does. Is there biblical justification then for us to open Psalm 35 or open our red psalter and pray them? There is. And, and already, as I was writing this, I, I, I could already feel the, the conflict. Well, isn't there a contradiction then with the command to love my enemy? How can the Bible justify this kind of prayer at the same time I'm commanded to love my enemy? This is probably the most difficult and challenging part of an imprecatory prayer. How can we both pray like David prays in Psalm 35 and yet still love our, our, our neighbor and our enemy? And this is again where we hear bad hermeneutics all the time. Well, the New Testament says this, and so there must be a conflict with the Old Testament, but it's not just that the New Testament tells us to love our enemies. That actually comes from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18 is where we get the second great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. But Proverbs 24.17, Solomon says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Proverbs 25, verses 21-22, through 22, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will reap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Paul is so gripped by that that he will quote that in Romans 12, saying, therefore love your enemies. He's getting that theology from the Old Testament. And so it's a, it's a bad argument to say, well, that's just the way that New Testament tells, these, tells us to do these things. It's all throughout the Bible that we are to love our enemies. But here's where we have to be very careful. That love has various stripes and various kinds. It is a multifaceted concept with implied varying degrees of intensity. That is, there are different kinds of love. And the love which, which we have is stronger for some and less so for others. I think we know this intuitively, but sometimes we just need to express it clearly. In other words, if I loved any other woman... With the same intensity that I love my wife, I have a major problem. And if I loved another woman the same way I loved my wife, I have an even bigger problem. As a pastor, if I don't have a special love and affection for you, for you dear saints, if I can look at all the Christians the same way, then I'm probably not shepherding you as I should. Because God has not charged me to be the shepherd over all the sheep, but over this particular flock. And so we see that there is a different, there, there's different kinds of loves. There's, there's romantic love. There's, there's, there's friendly love. There's familial love. And there's intensification going on there. You love some people more than you love others. That is right and good for you to love your family more than those who are not your family. And this is true of God, by the way. 
That God's love is often described by theologians in three ways. And this is helpful for us. That God is said to have a love of benevolence. That God wills good to the creature from eternity. We might call it his electing love. God has a love of beneficence. That God does good to the creature in time according to his goodwill. And then there is, I don't think this translates real well in English, but I'll I'll give it to you anyways. It's called the love of complacency. Doesn't mean that you just sit back and do nothing. The love of complacency is that God delights in the creature due to its loveliness. That is more and more reflecting the loveliness of God, which is none of us, by the way. We have to be made into the image of Christ for that kind of love to be cast upon us by God. Francis Turretin, one of the great reformed Orthodox theologians of all time, he says this in his uh, Institutes. He says, By the love of benevolence, he loved us before we were elected. Or, I'm sorry, before we were. In other words, he elected us. By the love of beneficence, he loves us as we are. That is, he redeems us. And by the love of complacency, he loves us when we are renewed according to his image. That is, he rewards us. So God has at least these three different kinds of loves. One of benevolence, beneficence, and complacency. And so now let's bring that over to how do we love our enemies? Well, for humans, we are not to love our enemies with a love of complacency. Any more than God does not love them with a love of complacency. And the love of complacency, those who are loved, are loved because they are lovely. In other words, why do we love Christ? Do we love Christ because we pity Christ? No. We love Christ because he is worthy. He is lovely. He is glorious to behold. We love Christ out of a love of complacency. Enemies, on the other hand, are not lovely. Therefore, we do not love them as if they are lovely, but we abhor them for their wickedness and their wretchedness. This is what we've seen. We love what God loves and we hate what God hates. On the other hand, when we have a love of benevolence and a love of beneficence, we pity. We pity that which is not lovely. We, we pour out love and compassion and kindness on the undeserving. What we, read, what, what we heard from Proverbs 25 that Paul will quote in Romans 12, to love your enemy if he's hungry, feed him. That's not the love of complacency. That's the love of beneficence. You're pitying and you're carrying out compassion on someone who doesn't deserve it. And so we can rightly love our enemies while at the same time called on judgment upon them because the love of complacency says we love God because he's lovely, therefore we want what God wants. While at the same time we can love our enemies because we pity them. Because we know that how pitiful we were deserving the wrath of God. So can we love and hate at the same time? We have to be able to say yes. Just as I was gathering my thoughts, there's some other thoughts that I've wanted to flesh out, and I'm not entirely sure how to do this, but I I want you to understand, brethren, that there is a what I would call a covenantal basis for imprecatory prayers. I want to lay this foundation for us because while I think that it is biblically justifiable to do, I want to give you a basis for how we can proceed and do it. The covenantal basis for our imprecatory prayers. 
Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. I've said it many times as we went through the book of Genesis. I said that Genesis chapter 12 acts as a hinge. That we go from the the ancient, ancient world of Genesis 1 through 11 and come into more current redemptive history in Genesis 12 with Abram. And it begins with a glorious promise from God in chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And that as we come to a covenantal basis for our imprecatory prayers, I want you to see, first of all, that the Abrahamic covenant that gets mentioned first in Genesis 12, that is our foundation for imprecatory prayers. The Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for imprecatory prayers. Look what is said in Genesis 12, verse 2. This is God speaking to Abram. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Now that's not where this covenantal promise stops. Verse 3, which gets quoted quite a few times in the New Testament as well. Glorious passage of scripture. Says this. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Theologically, brethren, we understand ourselves in the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah 31 and fulfilled as we heard about this morning with the blood of Christ, the the blood of the new covenant. We who are in the new covenant are said to be children of Abraham. Just read through Galatians chapter 3. We don't have time to look at it tonight, but Galatians 3, multiple times speak of believers our children of Abraham, Abraham being our spiritual father, the father in the faith, if you will. And that means that we can claim Genesis 12, 2 and 3 for ourselves. That we are part of this. This is not just for physical Israel. This is for the true children of Abraham, the true Israel of God. And that from those True believers, God will make a great nation and God will bless them and God will make their name great. That they might be a blessing, Genesis 12, 2. And then every church, every Christian can take a hold of Genesis 12, 3 and say this, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, primarily through Christ, the seed of Abraham, but we who are in Christ also enjoy the privilege of being the seed of Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That means that God promised in the Abrahamic covenant that he will not only bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed, Jesus. He also promises to bless those who bless Abraham's seed. This is why good government politics will uh, not harm the people of God, but help them, promote them. But he also promises to curse those who curse Abraham's seed. So the household of faith has these promises in which we can build our prayers upon. That God will indeed save his elect. We ought to pray that way. That's part of our jealous prayer, that we pray that way. He will bless those who bless his saints. We have to pray for our magistrate that they would bring about peace for us. Is that not what the New Testament tells us to do? And then we ought to pray that he will bring harm on those who will harm his saints, as Genesis 3 tells us. So that when I pray a prayer of imprecation, I'm simply leaning on the Abrahamic covenant as the promise given to Abraham and to his seed. 
We who are in Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, we enjoy what the Messiah has. God said he would do this, that he would curse those who curse Abraham's seed. God promised he would do that. Therefore, brethren, when I pray an imprecatory prayer, when I sing an imprecatory psalm with you, all we simply are doing is leaning on the Abrahamic covenant as the promise that God made that I'll do this. We're not doing anything novel. God initiates imprecatory prayers at the Abrahamic covenant. It's the foundation. Why do we pray that way? Why do we pray for blessing? Because that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. But why can we pray for cursing? Because that was promised to the seed of Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant, covenant is our foundation, our covenantal basis for prayer. But we can take this covenantally even further. Because God's chosen David, God chose David by way of covenant, then the Davidic king is our guide. I don't know if I, I didn't make it clear here, but when you come across these imprecatory psalms, they become our illustrations. That not only do we have the Abrahamic covenant as our foundation, but we have the Davidic covenant and the Davidic king giving us examples of how we do it. Those three imprecatory psalms that I mentioned, Psalm 35, Psalm 69, and Psalm 109, all are David's. How often was David kind to his enemies? You think back. The many times he could have killed Saul. He doesn't enact personal vengeance, but he certainly prayed against his enemies. He, he frequently prayed for their ruin, as we sang about in Psalm 35. Why did, why did we... Why did I choose Psalm 35? Because it's a tune that we're familiar with. Could have just as well done other psalms. But again, we have an illustration. We have a, an example by which we can model when it comes to imprecatory prayers. You say, how do I do this? This is so foreign to me. Take up and read, brethren. 1 Corinthians 10, the, the Old Testament was written as our example. Not only do we have the Abrahamic covenant as our foundation, the Davidic covenant being our example, but we have the, the high priest of the new covenant as our means to mediate these prayers. This is why I started our call to worship with Hebrews 4.16. If we can go to God in boldness and confidence, the way Hebrews 4.16 tells us to, for prayers of supplication... That's the same high priest, the same Davidic high priest, the same son of David, seed of Abraham, who intercedes on behalf of our prayers of imprecation as well. And therefore, we have right to the ear of God based on the merits of Christ and that we can go to him in confidence, not only bringing petitions of mercy, but also bringing requests of imprecation. And we don't do so with timidity. We do so with boldness. And then lastly, what governs or guides is the kingdom of God. What does our Lord Jesus Christ tell us? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek his righteousness, the justice, the supplanting of the wicked. That is our motivation. We have undergirding us this Abrahamic covenant promise. We have the Davidic example. We have the high priest in the new covenant guaranteeing that God hears us. And now what motivates us is what motivated Christ, the kingdom of God.
Brethren, it, it is vital. That I want you to key in, hear me now. It is vital that our jealous prayers of either evangelism or imprecation, it's vital that they coincide as one. If we are seeking first the kingdom of God in our prayers, we're praying jealously for evangelism and for condemnation and judgment, for God's glory, then it's important that our prayers, our jealous prayers, coincide both evangelistically and yet imprecatorially, if I can invent adverbs now. That when we pray against the enemy, we pray either for God to convert the enemy, or we pray that God would remove him, but we don't stop there. And this is where I think we, we, we fail when we, we pray this way. We don't simply pray that God would remove him. We do so that he might remove him for the furtherance of the gospel. Don't just bring down the enemy for the sake of the enemy. Bring down the enemy so that the gospel might flourish. That the kingdom of God might go forth. We do not simply pray that evil be removed merely because we hate evil. That's a good start. We pray that the void that would be left behind would be filled by gospel fruit or that the enemies themselves will be converted. Sometimes people will pray an imprecatory prayer having no concept or no concern for the kingdom of God. They simply want the baddies to be put down. And I would submit to you, to seek first the kingdom of God in your prayers is going to require that you pray for the conversion of your enemies. That you would pray that the worst dictator that you can think of would bow the knee to Christ. And if he's not going to bow the knee, take him out and replace him with someone who will. Yet so often it's simply, take him out. Brother, I would submit to you that if you pray this way with the kingdom of God first, seeking first the kingdom of God you pray for their conversion or the removal for the sake of the gospel. This is how we can both love our enemies and hate our enemies. In prayer at the same time. Bring them to faith. Convert their soul. Or remove them from their office and place of wickedness. So is there a biblical basis to do this? Absolutely. Is there a covenantal basis to do this? Absolutely. Let me conclude with some points of application. I have four, so I, I think I can move through these fairly quickly. We are going to take this up one more time. There's more, much more that needs to be said on this. I just want to speak in the, the, the abstract, and then we'll get more concrete next time. But some application. First of all, jealous for God. This has been the theme from the beginning, that God is jealous for his glory. He is his glory is what is most precious to him. It ought to be what is most precious to us. Therefore, jealousy for God materializes in the piety of prayer, the practice of prayer. That is to say, no prayer, no jealousy. If you are not praying, then it's a pretty good chance that you're not very jealous for God. And so I want to use jealousy as a as a call to give an account, could I truly say I'm as zealous for God, I'm jealous for His glory as I can be? Well, you could find that out by how much are you praying? Are you giving much time in prayer, praying for God's glory? Using the Lord's Prayer as a model. 
Praying through the Ten Commandments. Go back and listen to that sermon that Pastor Atkins did on prayer. Praying through the Ten Commandments using uh, the ACTS model. That was, that was wonderful. Maybe you need to be reminded of that, reinvigorated of it. Maybe your zeal has softened, your affections have, have cooled for Christ. Brethren, no prayer means no jealousy. So we can't even talk about an imprecatory prayer if you're not praying at all. So I would implore you, brethren, one of the ways that you can stoke your jealousy for God, you can inflame it, you can strengthen it, is that you start praying even now. You pray to God, you implore to God that His name be hallowed. You pray the Lord's Prayer, and you keep praying it until it's true in your life. That His name would be set apart. That His kingdom would become as that's what you are seeking first. And that His will, His law be done in your heart. Secondly, then, jealous prayer, now that we're moving into more directly jealous prayer, it has driving it, the seeking of God's kingdom first, seeking for it, the righteousness of God first, whether in salvation or condemnation. I want that to be cemented in your mind, that when you pray jealously because you're jealous for God, that you pray seeking first the kingdom of God. That governs how you pray. That governs how you would pray For the lost, whether it be a family member or a foe, you pray that God's kingdom be sought first. And if it's for an enemy, someone who is coming down upon you, as came upon David, as came upon Christ, you pray to them like you would tell them, woe to you, that God might save them. Or remove them for the sake of the gospel, that God might use that to save someone else. So jealous prayer has driving it, the seeking of God's kingdom first. We need to make sure that we get that notion solidly in our minds that when we pray, we seek first the kingdom of God. And that leads me then to a more practical applications. That is simply this. If you don't know how to do this, if this feels so at odds, how do I do this? Then this is why God gave us a book of prayers. Pray the Psalms. Pray all 150 of them. Pray all the requests of the psalmist. Whether that be casting cares, whether that be help me Lord, or whether that be Psalm 35, remove my enemy. Pray the Psalms and pray all of them because this forces us to deal with, uh, with emotions and concepts in our prayers that we're not comfortable with. There are prayers that speak of, God, you seem so far and distant from me. We feel like we're not allowed to pray that. But God has given us prayers. God has given us a book of prayers that we might pray. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was praying Psalm 22. When he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's straight out of Psalm 22. Because when you don't know what else to pray, when you don't know what else to say, pray the Psalms. And I I think you'll, you'll soon discover that the more you pray the Psalms, the more natural it is to pray for all of these various kinds of prayers. Prayers of, of supplication, prayers of mercy, prayers of praise, and even prayers that would be called imprecatory. So pray the Psalms, brethren. Part of your, your 
private worship could simply be praying a psalm in your mind to God. And then lastly, I want to say, not only should we pray the psalms, but rather we should sing the psalms. I love that we have a psalter and that there is not one psalm in our psalter that we ought not to be able to raise. Now, some of the tunes are not as easy to sing. But we have, we have a, a book of psalms that we ought to take up and sing, all of them. It would be an error for us to take up Psalm 35 together as a corporate body, as children of Abraham. It, it, it would be an error for us to think that would be something wrong. If you felt strange singing Psalm 35 together, that would be an error. We should be able to do that and do it joyously. You should have someone in mind or something in mind. Maybe it's the saints who are being persecuted all across the world. Maybe it's the wicked magistrate who is, who is encouraging uh, the transgender movement. All kinds of things we can insert. But we pray these psalms and we sing these psalms because this is the word of God. This is how we will wage spiritual warfare. These are war psalms. These are, these are war tunes. We go to war when we sing these psalms. and We do so with the gathered saints together. It would be an error for us to avoid them, to neglect them. We take them up and we sing them. Brethren, pray the psalms. We're going to sing the psalms. And Lord willing, next time we will understand how do we do this even more correctly? How do, how do we gauge our motivations? Who should we be praying these prayers to? Not just the guy that looked at me funny. Or the person that cut me off on the road. Don't pray that. I'm getting into ahead of myself here. But just let you know, be very careful. Before you get out of here gung-ho, ready to pray down uh, judgment upon the nations, just remember that Christ told the the sons of thunder, John and uh, James, before they were were ready to pray down thunder upon... uh, the Samaritans, Jesus told them not to be so quick for that. Why? Because you need to seek first the kingdom of God. Let's make that our endeavor as we return to the subject next time. Our Father, Lord, this is certainly a difficult subject and we would ask for your help. But Lord, probably where we need help the most is that you would help us to seek first your kingdom. That we would desire what you desire. We would love what you love. We would adore your glory. We would desire your name to be lifted up, that we would indeed hallow your name, not just in our lips, but we would want your name to be hallowed. That the request would not just be for personal sanctification, but that your name would be magnified on the lips of pagans and sinners across the world, that they confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Lord, may we seek first the kingdom of God. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus, your beloved Son. Amen.